as a bed, its bedness was kind of perfect. The Reuben sandwich was <laughs> perfect in its Reubenness. You know, everything was, you could appreciate it more because of the effort that you put into it. And I don't know how one can do that without the 22 miles before yeah. it. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I explore the idea of long-distance walking by literally opening my own back door and walking more than 20 miles across the prairies of north-central Kansas. This episode is something of a field report from day two of that adventure last month as I hike out of a north-central Kansas town known as Little Sweden for points beyond and ruminate on the philosophical idea of travel on foot. Joining me for this adventure, or actually leading me on this adventure for much of the way, is my wife-to-be, Kristen Bush, a.k.a. Kiki, who grew up in Kansas but has done long-distance walks worldwide in places like Austria and Argentina between global stents as an actress. We actually talk a bit about how acting was one of the original pre-digital digital nomad professions. Our conversation meanders a lot, just like a good hike does, and I've left in most all of the digressions and ambient noise along the way. We talk about the different modes of walking, from wilderness hikes to urban flaneuring to the country and small town walking of the sort we're doing on this day. We quote a lot of writers and philosophers about walking, from Edward Abbey to Rebecca Solnit to Werner Herzog. We talk about the spiritual nature of going on foot in an age of technological saturation, and we ruminate on the joys of physical hardship and the act of having earned your hunger at the end of the day. Some of what we talk about is specific to the walk at hand, like how a dog named Larry befriended us and helped us meet new people, and how we found out one of the roads we were walking on was named after a man who'd escaped slavery in Texas and came to live in Kansas after the Civil War. We celebrate the subtle beauty of prairie landscapes like Kansas, and if you stick around to the very end, there's an Easter egg about the power of silence. This episode is brought to you by the Santa Fe Workshops, which have a lot of great online offerings right now. You might recall that the great Pico Iyer did a three-day course through Santa Fe Workshops last week. Of course, Pico has been on this podcast, as has Pam Houston, who's offering a course called The Beauty of Our Pared Down Lives, which demystifies the art of writing prose and uses exercise to help you create vignettes, stories, and personal essays. More about Pam's class and all the writing and photography classes on offer can be found in my show notes or at santafeworkshops.com. Be sure to sign up there for their newsletter. For now, please listen in while Kiki and I explore the joys of long-distance walking from our own home. We start by reflecting on the challenges and struggles of our 22-mile walk the day before. Let's listen in. All right. Um, who are you? <laughs> I'm not introducing myself. You can introduce me. <laughs> and what are we doing in Sweden right now? Little Sweden. Uh, we walked here from your home. We walked here from my home, and how many blocks away is my home? Well, it's, I don't know in blocks, but it's about 22 miles, we figured. So we, in the dead of winter, on a very nice day in the dead of winter, walked 22 miles yesterday um, to Little Sweden, to Lindsborg, Kansas. Yep. And now we're enjoying coffee at the Blacksmith Coffee Shop. Yep. And we can reflect a little bit about what it's like to walk all day, what it's like to do some long distance hiking in sort of a counterintuitive way, because it's not like there's hiking trails that connect mm -mm. my ranch and Lindsborg, Kansas. It's true. There are dirt roads. Yeah, no, we didn't hit pavement until like the last three miles or so. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, 
you know, I'm sorry that you are super tired and out of shape. <laughs> and I'm clearly <laughs> leading the way. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry that I was such a dead weight that you had to kind of carry me over your shoulders at the end. That was really embarrassing, wasn't it? No, I mean, it's one thing to say you're going to walk 22 miles to Little Sweden on the plains of Kansas. It's another thing to walk 22 miles, especially when you haven't walked a lot. And neither of us has walked that long in a long time. <laughs> but I think you were in better walking shape than me. Well, I think there are a few factors at play there. Mm -hmm. um, my shoes were better. You were wearing your Blundstones, which are great shoes for kicking around and for shorter hikes, but I think longer hikes we determined is, are probably not. And I, I had hiked once um, in some Blundstones, and I also got a, a blood blister. Okay. Not that you got a blood blister, but I got a blood blister from them. And I was wearing pretty cozy, cozy um, tennis shoes, so that was mm -hmm. one factor. Mm -hmm. I think mentally I've done this more, mm -hmm. so I kind of knew. I did notice yesterday as we started off, you were at clipping. Yeah. And I, I was having a hard, in fact, there were several times that I had to like pull you back so you weren't walking in front of me. Right. Um, well, the, so we started off really fast. Uh -huh. um, and then I'm, I'm also younger. Does that play <laughs> into sure, it, yeah, maybe? Yeah. No, there are three very distinctive um, phases of my walk mm -hmm. and it feels like the first eight miles I was clipping I was feeling good you were and the second eight miles I was feeling it like it's like oh yeah you can't just wake up and walk 20 plus miles mm -mm. and feel normal and the last four miles I was suffering yeah um, and then after that you, you walked around like you were 20 years older <laughs> right. poor guy <laughs> Well, I think there's a lot of lessons to bring in, and I may as well bring in the first and maybe sort of obvious, I don't know if it's super obvious, but just there's different ways that we exercise in the 21st century. And oftentimes we'll go to the gym, and if we can't do that last set, if we're just spent, then we go to the locker room, clean up, and go home, right? If you're, if you're out for a run and you want to run 10 miles and you're burnt out after eight miles, you can walk home. But when you are walking, from my ranch to Little Sweden and you're on mile 18 and you feel horrible, you just have to keep walking, well, you know. I made some quip about Uber coming to pick us up. Not right. that I even think there is one in right. Lindsberg. Yeah, you have to keep going. You have to keep going. Look, there was some nice incentive. We had a, an Airbnb lined up. We went to this great little restaurant that I think you've actually mentioned or we've mentioned in a prior prior podcast, but there were sandwiches and beer to be had, so there was a carrot at the end of it. But yeah, those last few miles were they were they were hard for me too. But I could tell that you were hobbling along. Well, I, I, I think I, it was the footwear, though, to be perfectly. Well, it was footwear, honest. and then you know I'm just walking eight miles is fine. Walking 22 miles is just not <laughs> something my legs have done in a long yeah. time. You are yes, you're but very tall. It with wasn't long legs. it wasn't like I was. Um, it was either die, stop or die. It was just like, there's really no, you can slow down, you can just grind through, but you can't really call a cab. I mm -mm. mean, we probably could have coerced someone into picking us up. But I mean, it's like if we were in the wilderness in a more isolated place, nope. and, and we were in, a, in very isolated places, but they were isolated civilized places with dirt roads. I just had to suffer those those last, mm -hmm. probably the last two hours, maybe last hour for sure. Mm -hmm. I was hurting. And then it's funny how 
I've eaten at Old Stugo a lot. We've talked about it on this podcast before, uh, <laughs> having gone to Old Stugo, this Swedish restaurant up the street here. and uh, It's a bar. It's a bar. It's a bar. But I had, I had Boulevard Pale Ale. I had three of them. Beer. I can't remember the last time beer tasted so good. Yeah. I'm not a beer drinker anymore that much. But, man, that, that was like nectar. It was so good. And then I'm a fan of the Brent Nelson sandwich. I know that's going to sound weird to listeners, but it's... It's a sandwich with a bratwurst and smoked <laughs> cheese and onions, onions barbecue and sauce. barbecue sauce. It's so good. Yeah. yeah, no, we both remarked about how, and I don't know that we've experienced this before. This is one of the things I love maybe most of all about any sort of intense, be it walking or uh, half marathons or marathons or whatever, any intense amount of exercise that takes a long time and a lot of mental stamina there is something so satisfying on a very elemental level, a very human basic level at the end of it when you just feel like you've really earned the right to be hungry. Whereas, I mean, so much of the time, what do we do in a day? You might go on the treadmill, we might go for a walk, I might go for a run. I mean, all of those things are noble and good to keep up. But how often do people walk the distance? That, how often do we walk the distance that we did yesterday? It felt so great to sit there and go, Wow, we just did that. Well, we said we were going to do it, and we did it, which was which was pretty exciting. Which was great. That was a part of the ritual: is that we're going to walk 20 miles to Lindsborg. Ended yeah. up being 22 miles. Um, and it was hard work. Mm -hmm. And I've talked before on this podcast about achievement versus appreciation. Let's let that truck go by. Sorry, not a truck. Backhoe. John Deere front and back loader. If I were more of a dude, I would know what that was exactly. Tobacco. I've talked on this podcast before about achievement versus appreciation. You know, that often we spend the first half of our life focused on achievement, and then ideally we learn appreciation later in life, or maybe both at the same time. I think one thing about walking a long distance is that you have achievement, you have, well, we made it. But then appreciation is so much sharper. Uh, just like, again, those three Boulevard Pale Ales I had, that's a good brewery in Kansas City, God, that, those were so good mm -hmm. in a way that if I just randomly ended my workday and had a Boulevard Pale Ale, it would have been fine, but it, I wouldn't have celebrated it. No. And another thing, too, is um, as we were walking, one fun thing in Kansas, there's not really mountains, but we had um, different points of reference. And one was Coronado Heights and this a little ridge of hills, which are not very common in Kansas. And we sort of we're able to see them the entire seven hours of our walk, mm -hmm. but we were sort of walking around them. But then once we got close to Lindsberg, we saw the grain elevator. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to drive by, and my audience might know, a grain elevator is just a, this giant concrete structure that you see in all Kansas towns. They're usually on railroad tracks. It's where grain is stored and then put on the trains to be to taken to Chicago or wherever to make bread. Um, I've seen a thousand grain elevators in Kansas before. I've never, they didn't look so beautiful as when I came into town because there's something about seeing the grain elevator three hours away and you're walking and you're in pain. And then the sun had set by the time we were in town yesterday. But it cast a kind of beautiful orange glow on it. But yeah, and, and it was lit by whatever ambient light is here. And it, was, it made me realize that as an object, this um, grain elevator, which is probably four or five stories high compared to an urban building, um, is beautiful, like just as a design object, it was beautiful. And it was, it was one of those weird things where I was sort of seeing grain elevators for the first time. I realized that 
obviously there's a function to green elevators, but there's something weirdly, and I know this sounds like a stoner talk. I have heard it spoken of with psychedelics that you have, what's it called, mushroom vision or something like that, and you mm-hmm. see kind of a, you're able to see things in their eternal form. Uh-huh. I was feeling what I think that might be like, just things being in their natural state kind of beautiful. Even towards, even at the very end of the day, the bed was just this kind of perfect bed right. in this crazy Airbnb. It was just so cozy. There was nothing aesthetically pleasing about it, but as a bed, its bedness was kind of perfect. The Reuben sandwich was <laughs> perfect in its Reubenness. You know, everything was, you could appreciate it more because of the effort that you put into it. And I don't know how one can do that without the 22 miles before mm. it. I mean, well, well, I talk in Vagabonding about um, when you travel, you don't really need to do drugs because everything is so extraordinary and bracing and, and new. And I think this is an iteration of it that I'm not saying, I'm not giving a comparison contrast between 22 miles hikes and drugs. I'm just saying. Well, I think I was. <laughs> that there's, there's different ways of seeing, right? There's different ways of apprehending exactly. the world in front of us. And seeing a grain elevator as you're driving on your way to work is different. Again, a grain elevator is this, this giant tube where they keep grain for trains. But seeing it after a 22-mile hike, when it's in your vision and it's slowly getting bigger for the last three hours, suddenly you're there and you're just exhausted. And, and, and when I say you, I mean me. Yesterday, just the light was perfect. And it's just like this is a strangely beautiful object. It's big and it's, it has these rounded curves. And there's something we're celebrating about this grain elevator. Well, I had a moment like that that was before that. We got to I-135, which is this big four-lane highway, you know, fairly busy for this part of the world. And I've been on that probably at this stage, if not hundreds, tens of times, and not really thought about it other than just to get through it. I've passed under that underpass that we walked over many, many times and not really given it much thought. But when you're there seeing the people come and go, and you've gotten there by your own two feet, something feels very, I don't know what the right word is. Sacred is far too strong a word, but something, it's just, it's different in your perspective. Like, I know what it took to get there as opposed to just getting in a car and pressing my foot on the gas. Like, I walked there with I don't know how many hundreds of steps, and it looks different in my mind's eye now. Well, I think that you were alive the whole way. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about this when trains were invented, basically in the early 1900s or in the early 1800s, when trains were being train tracks were being built across Europe. People they liked the convenience of trains, but they complained that that made the countryside between two cities in England irrelevant. Yeah. Suddenly, you were like, yeah. it was like you were being mailed like a package of goods. Yeah. And I think philosophically, it was so new that people understood that you were sort of losing part of being alive by not walking yeah. into London from the, the surrounding city. I couldn't agree more. I think that my big aha moment with that, I mean, when you grow up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, you, you have to drive everywhere. In fact, my, my, dra- my dad, bless his heart, drove us to school, which was just like now it's anathema to me. You it's would a few never, blocks. Oh yeah, it's gross. <laughs> but that's what we did. We, to, to his credit, he didn't want us to be late and we were often late. Anyway, but you drive everywhere. We drove to church. We drove, to, of course, we drove to the movie theater because that was 30 miles away. No one was going to walk there, but we drove to the gr- grocery store. When you live in a city, like, you don't have the option to do that. In fact, when I had first moved to New York, I was doing a play up at 
the old Studio 54 that's now run by the, by the Roundabout, the only time I was ever on Broadway, and I wasn't technically on it because I was understudying. It was my first gig. Anyway, they, um, it was the winter, and I think I've told you this, they had, I think it was a strike for the subway, and it was unheard of, didn't happen very much. It's not like we lived in London or France when that sort of thing happened all the time. But that was, I was living in Brooklyn, and that was a long way. Without the subway, I mean, what do you do? This was before city bikes, it was in the dead of winter, so I decided to walk. And it took me about two and a half hours one way. And I did that a couple of times until they finally arranged a van and I succumbed to the, to the creature comforts of that. But the few times that I did it, it just felt so, I felt so independent. Like, I can walk to work and it's gonna take me a really long time, but look what I just did. And this was around the same time that I moved to the city and I, I, I think that's when I first discovered my love of urban walking. I mean, I loved to walk in the mountains because that's easy, but urban walking, there's something, there's something about being able to go from the Upper West Side, not that, that like the 50s or whatever, all the way down to, you know, Cobble Hill or wherever it was and, and think, wow, I just did that. Well, this is worth acknowledging because we basically did, we didn't really hike in the mountains, but we did a rural walk yeah. yesterday. And this is one thing that I want to come back to is we didn't have any beautiful vistas no. or mountain goats or yodeling peasants that the, the beauty that we saw yesterday was very subtle. And I want to get back and, and talk about that a little bit. But and it has to be said, not to shine a light on how unique we are, because I think that you both, we both kind of shy away from that. But no one does that here. I mean, no one walks from, you know, no one walks 22 miles just to spend the night in some sort of random town in the middle of Kansas. No one does that. Well, to, to, to hint at something we'll come back to is that the one time that we, well, we interacted with a few people on the way in, but when, during a certain incidence where we were being helped by a couple guys, um, they called us hitchhikers because right. they didn't really have a word for right. what we were doing. Right. Nobody right. walks from town to town. Right. And so... Although we saw that one guy, remember? Oh, that's true. That's true. That once once we, we, were for, we were going for a run near my house, and we saw a guy who, who must have been walking like from Canada or Mexico or something. Something like that, yeah. Um, because I saw him when I went to your hometown the next day. Mm -hmm. I saw him again. Yeah. Uh, and so this, maybe it happens more often than you think. But maybe. The point that I want to grab onto is that there's two classic modes of walking in this day and age, and one is urban and one is rural or country walking. And I've been reading Rebecca Solnit's Wanderlust, which is a f terrific book. It's probably one of my the favorite books. I've, I'm not done with it yet, but one of the best books I've read in recent years, uh, along with Beryl Markham's West of the Night and William Finnegan's Barbarian Days, all of which sort of have a travel angle. But she splits, I mean, she th talks about things like pilgrimage, but then she talks about things like the flaneur walking in the city versus you know hiking in the mountains and stuff. And so in a sense, the conversation that we're gonna have is about the rural or the country or the wilderness walking because the flaneuring is another monster entirely and we're, little Sweden, Lindsberg, Kansas, is about the size of your hometown. It's a little bigger. I asked in there, she said it was around 3,000 people. And your hometown is? It's like two, okay. 2,500. Well, I don't know if you can really properly flaneur in a town this small, you know, <laughs> that in a way. I think we've flaneured it. We've gone to the bar, we're at the coffee shop. I went to the mountain store that they have, or not mountain store, outdoor store across the street. Like, I think we're done. <laughs> but it's, it's charming. Big plug, shout out to well, Lindsberg. Well, I'm, I'm using flaneur. Some people might not know what that is. A flaneur is sort of an urban walker who the purpose is not to get from point A, 
to point B, but to blend with the crowd and wander with no guiding principle beyond feeling and inspiration. Am I wrong in thinking it also has, I think it has an aspect of wealth as well to it. I mean, obviously the person who was free to flaneur around in a city didn't have to go to the factory. You know, when yeah. I, in my mind's eye, it kind of conjures up this man with who's nicely dressed with like leather gloves and a walking stick or something. Well, there's a corollary. Um, some uh, Edmund White wrote a book about the flaneur, and he's gay, right? So he talks about cruising. Oh, how that you know, was, the yeah. idea that huh. um, there was an era of male gay life where maybe it still happens, where you cruise. We were walking down the street just looking for a hookup, right? Looking for that eye contact that says, "Yeah, I'm right. into guys too." Well, flaneuring is the same, but it's not sexualized. It's like you're walking through the city and you're just looking for experience. Now, Rebecca Solnit writes about this not in the context of class. Maybe she touches on it, but she's a woman, right? So the idea that if you're a woman, you know, Baudelaire made flaneuring popular in Paris in, in the 19th century in the context of Paris. But women didn't have that public life, you know, that women were maybe considered prostitutes if they were walking around looking for experience, right? It was dangerous if you were, I mean, it was dangerous to, certainly to be a prostitute, but it was dangerous to be a, a woman out walking during those times. Correct. Un, you know, unaccompanied. And it, so I'd like to think it's much more possible to be a flaneuse, to be a, a lady flaneur. Um, <laughs> these days, I mean, um, there's there's I'm a. I'm gonna put that on my. <laughs> <laughs> not that I have cards. Lady I'm flaneur. gonna be like Kristen Bush, Lady Flaneur. <laughs> lady Flaneur. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that there is a little bit, uh, to use an overused word, uh, of privilege in the Flaneur gaze, right? But sure. in a small town, you can't get lost in a crowd where basically people are like, oh, well, there's those hiker people. They walked here yesterday. Those hitchhikers. <laughs> like um, the, the the fact that. To walk in a town like this or your hometown, within an hour, everybody's going to know, know who you are. It's right. not like right. a giant metropolis. And so Rebecca Solnit divides it into urban and, and non-urban walking, but in a way, you could probably take several different categorizations, whereas walking in a small town, like you just said how when you were young, your dad drove you to school when you could have walked those however many five blocks or whatever. And that that's, you know love on his part. He didn't want us to be late. Yeah. But we should but have, we should have walked ourselves to school. But you and I have gone for runs around Sterling, your hometown, where mm -hmm. we basically run we've encompassed the entire town in 40 minutes, mm -hmm. right? And so being able to walk through a town, we don't really need to drive to get from one end to the other in half an hour or whatever or an hour. Um, that's a different monster than a giant metropolis, right? Yeah. Um, actually another person I've been reading about walking recently and it feels relevant is Werner Herzog. Um, Vanna. Vanna. Um, he did something that's quite remarkable. I love the idea of it. His, um, his mentor, a, a woman who was a pioneer of filmmaking in Germany, was sick and was in Paris. And he thought that going to visit her on the train would not be as empathetic to her physical suffering as walking from Munich to Paris. It's beautiful. And so he, um, he walked over the course of, of a few weeks from Munich to Paris to visit what he thought was her deathbed. It turns out she recovered. Well, maybe he revived her but on he, his walk. That was, that was uh, well, I mean, that was, I think, part of his spiritual purpose yeah. was to sort of maybe give her strength by mm -hmm. joining her in, in a kind of physical suffering. But if you read his journal, I think it's called Walking on Ice. It's some variation of Walking on Ice. 
because it's a journal, it's not meant to be a philosophical book. I think sometimes with Rebecca Solnit, other people who've written about walking, um, you sort of lead with philosophy and sometimes you miss how miserable it can be sometimes. So a lot of Werner Herzog's diary, which I can appreciate after yesterday, is talking about how his feet hurt yeah. or his boots were too heavy or people's, he was cold. People's whole hikes have been thwarted by blisters. I mean, yeah. these, these are, it's not a small thing if you're in the middle of nowhere and you've got this, you know, dime-sized or quarter-sized in certain people's cases. <laughs> Mine's Blister. pretty big. But you, you know, this, I think this touches on and I'm hardly a philosopher, nor am I a writer, nor am I much of a great thinker, but walking is so metaphoric to me. I was telling you that this morning when we were remarking on something. It, there's, it just feels like a story, but it, it feels like a microcosm of life. Like You start off in a certain way, and then you encounter these kind of difficulties, and you have to get yourself out of them. And how it goes for you depends on your attitude a lot of the time. And it's almost, in some ways, better to have like a conflict that you overcome because you feel like you galvanize your own resources and you feel like you can overcome something and it feels like you really achieved something when you walk into town and you can have your sandwich. It, I don't know, it's a metaphor for life and I think that that Herzog's vision is certainly in keeping with, with that. Well, I think it's, it can be a metaphor for how what we remember life too mm -hmm. because the story I tell about the 22 mile walk now is gonna be different than the one I was telling four miles outside of mm -hmm. Lindsborg yesterday, yep. when suddenly I was your 70-year-old husband, <laughs> right? Um, and I think what is interesting, like Werner Herzog's journal of this experience is not literary, it's just a diary, mm -hmm. but it's so honest about the pain and mm -hmm. suffering and misery that And there's come. boredom, too. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. there are just these periods of time where it's like if I have to look at another stone or in our case, another grassland. I mean, we didn't get bored of it because it was still really new for us, but on day seven, on day whatever, if you're like you're the guy that you interviewed who walked across America, my goodness. Right, well, I mean, that guy who was maybe walking from Canada to Mexico, we, mm -hmm. we didn't talk to him. Um, yeah, th th this is, when, when you walk from North Dakota to the Oklahoma-Texas border, that's a lot of prairie, that's mm -hmm. a lot of plains. It's a lot of agricultural land, and you have to come to terms with that. Um, I think because we are in a part of America that is not considered an air quotes attraction, uh, the attractions are very small. And I think it's what we found delight in yesterday was very subtle. Um, and I know that there's a point about four miles into the walk, four miles of the 22, that suddenly. I, I live in a very pretty part of the state, but we walked sort of, I want to say to a higher altitude, but it, maybe 10 feet higher. Basically, the landscape changed, and there were no longer any trees and not very many hedgerows or fence lines. And we were in, you compared it to that painting, Somebody's uh, World. Christina's Christ, World. Christina's World. Who's the painter? Do it was know? Wyeth. Yeah, Wyeth, which is, I think, set in New England. Mm -hmm. um, I think it might be Maine. And it's funny how we have art metaphors to describe a type of wonder. And so one of the high points, it just happened to be four miles into a 22-mile hike, was when we walked to the point where almost for as far as we could see, there were no trees or buildings. It was just rolling grassland in, in all directions. And it was gorgeous. Yeah. 
you and I've talked about this a lot, how it's very easy to go to Colorado and that's one of my spiritual homes for sure and to look around and just go, oh dear God, what is this? It's magnificent. There must be something that created this. I mean, it just confirms all the good things in life. Um, but here it's, it's sometimes harder to see the, the beauty of it. But I think that you and I, after having gone away from it, are able to, to see the subtleties of it. And I think in some ways, this sounds maybe snobby, but I'm, I'm proud of the subtle beauty in, in our home state. Like, of course it's easy to see how gorgeous things are in Acadia National Park or the Redwoods or wherever, but to, to look at a grassland and to really see it for, for its nuances and to celebrate it is, yeah. And even to feel it viscerally, because mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you see the sublime, when you see beauty, you feel it in your in your heart. Mm-hmm. And I felt that yesterday, just like, it's like, oh my God, this is six miles from my mm-hmm. house. I love the view at my house, but this is special. Mm-hmm. And you, know? you t- tried to take, a, you did take a picture of it and it didn't capture the gradations of the hills, you mm-hmm. know, and that's something that... Because they're so subtle. They're so subtle, but they're very real. Um, that's something that doesn't always come across when you post it on social media or whatever. You have to, you have to experience it and, um, and keep it inside and remember it there. Well, I think that there's a lot of things we're trying to get away from when we undertake these things. And one is the hashtag idea of beauty. Because you and I have been in beautiful parts of, you know, classically beautiful parts of Colorado, and we've seen people posing for Instagram. Yep. Um, Nobody would ever hashtag this random road. I mean, maybe if you're like the ultimate hipster. Right. (laughs) I don't know. Oh, God. (laughs) You want to like integrate 1990s style um, one downsmanship hipsterism with uh, hashtags. Right. That this random road. And one another fun thing about yesterday's hike is that we hiked on dirt for probably 18 to 20 of the 22 miles. That we didn't hit pavement until we, until the very end when we um, started nearing Little Sweden, Lindsborg, Kansas. Um, and, and also, we saw probably in the first 10 or 15 miles, three or four cars, maybe mm-hmm. five. Um, and so, it's, so even though we were walking on roads, there was not much traffic at all. And, and sometimes, it was almost impassable. If it had been raining, it wouldn't have been a car. Well, there road. are those signs that, we, that tickled us about travel at your own risk, road closed when it's wet. I mean, look, after living in this state or born and raised and then going away, I just find such delight in coming back and seeing the things that, <laughs> that are so unique to it. I've got one of my dearest friends in England when I've told him he needs to come to the States and spend some time with me, he's been to New York, but he's never been out to Kansas or to Colorado. And I've said, oh, you'll love Colorado, the cabin, mountains, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, that sounds all very nice, but I think I'd like to go to, go to your hometown in Sterling because that to him would be more foreign, you know? And I, I feel like I'm seeing that a little bit more, how just unique of a place this is. Like all the beer cans we saw. All the, I mean, you, like, you read my mind. I mean, we had a bunch of, they're almost like little mental initiatives that we went through. Early on, we started counting windmills. Right. And then we sort of lost interest. And then we in saw that. the boots on the, I mean, we saw this incredibly bucolic postcard of Kansas with the three long horned um, cows. cows. And then they had colorful boots on their 
posts on the fence posts that were kind of fun and then on the other side of the fence they had the the cow skulls or whatever. I mean, yeah. it was someone kind of having fun with their own farm, with their own well, ranch. Th that's also the sort of thing that would make your English friend Absolutely. very excited. The idea that Absolutely. people put their old cowboy boots on top of fence posts or that they put cow skulls on top of right. fence posts. As a form of decoration or a tongue-in-cheek for no one who's out there except, you know, us. But, but we had as much fun looking at the beer cans. <laughs> and what's the one thing that we found in common with all the beer cans? It's and we saw a couple hundred. It's light. It's, it's L-I-T-E beer, beer baby. In a way, we solved a mystery that somehow when people drive in the country in this part of Kansas. When people, let's, dudes, it's probably when dudes. <laughs> dudes in their pickups. <laughs> one, they throw their beer cans out the window. They consume it in the car. They drink it in the car. <laughs> and it's always light beer. It is. I don't think we saw a single, we saw hundreds of cans. And it's not like it's littered. We hiked 22 miles and we saw right. a few beer cans per mile. They were the jewels on the side of the road. I think we can confirm that even good old boys drinking beer are concerned about their figures. Right. <laughs> if you're going to be sitting in your trunk drinking a bunch of beers, you may as well go with light beer. Um, another interesting detail is that we had company. We sure did. Uh, and this is, again, it's On it's Larry not Lapsley <laughs> Road. It's not something that you would think about in terms of a classic alpine hike, and uh, apart from an annoyance, but we were walking along in this giant dog. Well, tell them about the, the street. I think that that's a, a really interesting well, little tidbit. Here's another, I, I think if you allow yourself to understand that every mile of every land in the world can be a mystery. And so we were walking down Lapsley Road. Well, I, I just happened to know that Lapsley Road, you know, any given county in America, the road's going to be named after important people. McReynolds right? or right. Woodward or... And, and who knows, maybe they're mayors or important businessmen or something. Or g more likely generals in, you know, some well, war or something like that. You know, a lot of union generals in this part of the country. But I happen to know that Lapsley Road was named after Larry Lapsley, who was an early settler in this part of Kansas, but was basically an escaped slave. A black guy who was born in Kentucky. Fascinating and story. It's a fascinating story, but it's worth telling right now because we're on a road named after not, you know, some white dude with a mustache, but right. sort of this sort of cool, humble African American settler who was born in Kentucky, and then his owners. It sounds so weird. That I know. Used to be. Owned. You read that last night about how like the mother who had quite the plantation owner mother who had quite an affection for him like bequeathed him to her son and told the son to look after Larry and his sister and you're just kind of going you can do that with people I mean even in reading about it it's just still kind of shocking well I think too you know we can see Kansas because we're from Kansas and we're not looking for something more spectacular for Larry Lapsley this right. was sort of the promise line, right is that basically he to skip ahead in his story, he escaped from Texas, snuck but, across Oklahoma. But, but tell this, tell the tiny little tidbit about like there being a, a Native American raid or something like that. What was the deal? Well, basically, he was moved to Missouri, but then during and this makes makes you realize how just small people were back then. Is that when the Union troops were coming down on Missouri, his owner basically he didn't want to give up his slaves, so he went to Texas, right. where it w which was closer, which was further from the Union Army. And then literally the guy who owned him just sort of made money renting out his slaves. And so uh, as an enslaved person, Larry became a distiller on the, on the Red River down in Texas. And the Red River 
is the border between Texas and Oklahoma. And his cousin had an owner, again, it sounds so weird that people were owned by other people, who was not very nice. And he's here, I think we can sneak across Oklahoma and get to Kansas, which meant freedom back then. And he's like, yeah, but they're paying, they're paying the Indians, they're paying the, the, what was it, the Choctaw or the Cheyenne? There was some Indian tribes down there who had $100 bounties on escaped slaves. They could, that's a ton of money back yeah. then. And he's like, it's not worth risking. And his cousin says, I think we should do it. Well, his cousin didn't make it, but he did. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, oh, he made geez. it to a Union fort, and he befriended some soldiers. He must have had a big personality because he um, uh, befriended some soldiers, some of whom settled Saline County, Kansas, and he went there. Um, sadly, he never married. I don't think there were, it was probably strange to marry a white lady then, and there weren't many black ladies there. And so, but he got 119 acres. He was a landowner in Kansas. Um, and he must have just been an upstanding citizen. He learned to read and write as an adult, mm -hmm. and um, he was just a farmer. He was a, he was a pioneer out here. And so that was, that's interesting. I think that most people, including most people who, who live here, wouldn't understand that, but it's like, Lapsley, I think that is that escaped slave who was a settler. And then we researched it, our reading last night was part of his life. And so I think in any landscape, there's sort of um, a matrix of meanings behind the way things are, are named, you know, and why this road takes a curve here. Is it geographical or is it political? Why this road has this curve that doesn't seem to make any sense. And I think that just another thing to be proud about with Kansas as a free state, like how great that it was named after one of the first black settlers of a road in Saline County. Absolutely, you know? Well, and again, you know, we, your average person might say this place is not very interesting. No, it, well, it's not but very diverse. But for a lot of, you know, African-American post-slaves back then, yeah. this was a promised land. And there, we went through Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Kansas, where they gave land to black settlers. Yeah. They created an entire town around that in the 1800s, which is the same era that Larry Lapsley was a pioneer in this part of the country. And so in a way, it's... There's all these different ways at which education can happen. We can learn about the landscape and, and things like that, but you can also learn about the history of a place. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes you don't have to name a road after an old white dude with a mustache, that it can be this guy who just seemed like this amazing person who was does make happy it, to be here. It makes it richer, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm remiss in not knowing about the Native American tribes that were around here very much. I'm sure that every place that we walked along, you know, it was populated by many, many people before us that we just didn't didn't learn about. They weren't they were given short shrift in our history books, and I haven't taken it upon myself to learn much about it. Um, and I should, but I know that even just knowing, okay, Lapsley Road, who's that person? That just deepens the experience so much. And then it's even funnier that we had our <laughs> our little. Tag along. Well, well I want to, we we um we we named him Larry for, for Larry Lapsley, but <laughs> in honor. But one point I want to make is that the history that we're taught is often the history of settlement. Sure. And as a travel writer, I've been attuned to this. Well, the Plains Indians were nomadic, right? That they yeah. teepees were not permanent fixtures, right? And so that they would follow the herds, and so you're more likely probably to learn about the settled uh, Indian tribes who lived in the Mississippi sure, Valley than I'm you were about the Plains Indians here. I, I'm just, I'm not saying about the deficiencies of your Native American education, I'm just saying Oh that. no, it was deficient, believe me. But, I mean, I think my bigger point is that even just learning about 
a street enhances my experience of a place and makes me appreciate it more, makes me feel connected to the place in a different way, I need to, the onus is on me to learn more about it beyond just my, you know, seventh grade Kansas history. Was and it? no, we might not be able to say it was here on this spot that they put their teepee, but maybe it was around there, you know? And I think there's several layers in which you can know a place. You can know it architecturally or biologically or socioculturally. And I think, you know, maybe knowing which tribes use this as sort of their nomadic staging ground, if there weren't settlements in the city sense, then that's another layer of getting to know a place. Um, even, you know, we're sitting outside a coffee shop in Little Sweden right now, and there's a lot of history. It used to be a blacksmith shop. Yeah. And there's, the wall has a history of like, well, the Swedes came here in 1869, and they yep. built this. And on the 4th of July, he went out and blew up some of his black powder. And when you heard that explosion, you knew the 4th of July and had started. Teddy Roosevelt stopped in here when he was running on the ticket with oh, McKinley. McKinley. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Didn't know that happened on whatever rail. Yeah. Railway. Well, it, it must, must have been a rail type thing. Again, sure. uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't walk here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He walked a lot of places, but he didn't walk here. He walked and so a lot of places. The railroad was sort of the internet of its day that yeah. put somebody here to, to give a message. Um, let's Should talk we about get the dog. walking? Do you want to walk and talk? I think so, because okay. what time is it? So what are we going to, just so people know, we're sitting outside a coffee shop now, but we're not done walking. No. We walked 22 miles yesterday, and now where are we going to go? Like four more to go to Coronado Heights, I think. Right. No, it's not four. It's like only a couple. Well, I think it might be more than that. But um, because I'm old and blistered, I don't think we're going to walk the 22 miles all the way home. Uh, because I have family nearby, we can sort of call our, our escape shoot anytime. Oh, man. But actually, totally chickening out. As one right. aside, it's not like, I don't think anybody can go from zero to 44 miles in no. two days without consequence. And so. I thought we were being a little ambitious anyway when I thought we would do the whole thing. No, the fact that we've done this is, is impressive enough for us, don't you think? You yeah. Nothing to be embarrassed about. I'm, I'm not embarrassed at all. Should you, do you want to pause it and then we can? No, I just want to keep talking. Get ensconced. Um, the only problem is, is that we have a loud <laughs> mic and so we're sort of connected. <laughs> we never did talk about Larry the dog. But basically we, we are, Hang on, hang on, hang on. We need to say though, we're in this small town that I'm sure people are going to take a look at us and think, oh, them hitchhikers <laughs> and they've, they've got some radio equipment up. <laughs> you think they're trying to listen to people's conversations? I mean, what do you think they're going to say? <laughs> Oh, I, I have no idea. Oh, this isn't bad. This isn't bad. What's that? Let's go this way. I think we should find a dirt road out of town. I don't know that we can. I think we have to go. The straightest shot is straight and then left. Oh, the sun is nice. What a gorgeous day. Yeah. So we're, we're walking down Little Sweet and there's dollar horses. Everywhere. Like every 20 feet, there's Swedish flags hanging. It's such a... Actually, here's um, Hemsley. There's like a gift store where you you bought your mom or your dad. I bought them Norwegian paraphernalia for Christmas. Since you have Norwegian ancestry, it's true. Actually, do, do Norwegians and Swedes are they like the sharks and the jets of the Scandinavia? No. Like, do you have any no, rivalry with? Although, my dear relative Dag, no Hans, is married to a lovely woman from Sweden, and they do give her some 
some guff about being Swedish. Should we, let's go up past the campus. What do you say? Yeah. And it's, um, they have so many things in Hemsloy that are, you know, all Scandinavian. And a lot of their, the thing is that if you speak Norwegian, you can basically understand Swedish, even if you don't speak it perfectly. It's so similar that, that they can, one can speak to the other and they can completely understand. And did you have a Norwegian relative come to Little Sweden? Yeah. We, Bitta, my, I think of her as my older sister, my Norwegian sister, uh, lived with us for a year. And we came here for a festival and she was just completely flabbergasted. She was like, what is this place? It, I mean, they wear their Swedish heritage loud and proud. And that's one of the things that just makes it such a darling town. But she was, she just thought, what? America is so weird. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think there's many Swedish speakers left here. No. There's a lot of people named Johnson and Peterson. Anderson and Isaacson and yeah. stuff. Anyway, we've built up Larry the dog so much. Okay, so talk about Larry. So disappointed. Well, this was a strangely central part to the day. It's like right. our, there was before Larry and after well, Larry. Well, I part think of the he hike. look like all things on long walks. I think you can turn it into some sort of a metaphor or a symbol. And Larry the dog comes bounding out of this house on the corner of Lapsley and whatever it was, Woodard. Describe him. He was. He was old, you could tell from his kind of graying muzzle. He had this lolling tongue that kind of <laughs> rolled out of his mouth. He, his personality he was, was, he was giant. Um, and we can get to the specific descriptor of him later. Um, but he was so affable. And it was just like he made two new friends. And it was, he, he was set set for life it seemed like so we started walking away from his home and he accompanied us and you kind of think okay he's going to turn around any moment and he lived on a far like a farmstead yeah. sort and of we, in the middle of nowhere we went by this he accompanied us by this absolutely beautiful horse farm that had like 45 horses do you remember those actually that was another beautiful moment that was like, incredible there was like 30 horses running at once in the same and, direction across the prairie they started running because we were walking by them mm-hmm and something in that incited them to With the to cinematographer, run. it would have made a beautiful like tracking shot. It was, it was great, shot. but Larry was there. And so we got to the end of the section, which was mile, and then we turned south and he kept going. And I, I, I was like, go home, Larry, go home. But that time I think we had a different name for him. <laughs> he, oh, went, yeah. he went through so many different iterations. Right, his name, just so everyone knows, his name is not actually Larry. No. He decided his name was Larry in honor of Larry, of Larry Lapsley. Um, but then there was, we got to another kind of little farm area and what I thought was a dead cat in the road was actually a dead rabbit. And Larry just thought that was great. So he picked <laughs> it up and he like had it in his mouth and was so proud of it. And we were just not impressed. So finally he found a, a place on the side of the road and dug a hole and put it in there and then he came up to you and started licking you with his dead rabbit tongue. <laughs> well then also we would, sometimes we would stop, you know, to get our bearings or to call, to make some phone calls to figure out how to get Larry out of her life. Oh my gosh. And he would just sit there, he would just he sit. He sat there patiently. Very dutifully, as if he was our dog. We got, we went by another woman with a dog or two and Obviously, we didn't have a leash for Larry because he wasn't ours. And we said to her, we don't know, you know, who this dog belongs to. And she just said, yeah, 
I thought he would stay with those dogs and he didn't. He went with us for like six miles. Well, yeah, no, about a fourth of the hike, more than, <laughs> we had a dog. It was as if, it was as if we brought, we, he was so friendly, it was as if we brought our own dog. Yeah. Um, oh man. And finally, I, I was more worried about him than you were, and you were right. We weren't responsible for Larry, but I, I didn't want to take him, you know, 15 miles into a little town and have him be so far away from home. So I remembered the name of the horse farm that was next to his farm. I don't, they didn't have a plaque outside of his house. And this but is something you couldn't have done in 1891. No, we would have had to have walked all the way back and dropped Larry you back searched, home. You searched the name of the farm on... With the horses. On your phone. Right. I found something in the white pages uh, and left a message on what was probably a landline and thought, well, that's probably the best I'm going to be able to do. And maybe two miles later, this truck comes up and this incredibly friendly man gets out of the car and was like, my mom got your message. <laughs> and I do know those people. So let's try to get this dog in my truck. Right, right. <laughs> oh, man. So we tried and he wouldn't get in the truck. And then coming down the road, the guy was like, oh, this is so-and-so. He was in a grater. Right, he was in a road grader. He was in a road grader. He's like, oh, that's again, my friend. If people don't, like, in a place with a lot of dirt roads, a grader needs to go and smooth the roads every so often. And so, so this guy comes up. He's job. like, oh yeah, I know this guy. Of course he knew this guy. And this right. guy was really good friends with the dog's owners. So they were able to get the dog into the back of the truck. And the guy, the grader guy, <laughs> he had to pick up Larry. Larry must have been. <laughs> How, how you, Larry must have been over 100 pounds. Larry's probably my size. The, the guy said, well, that's a big-ass dog, <laughs> as he was getting him in the back of the truck. <laughs> so this is what counts for excitement oh my yesterday. Gosh. But we wouldn't have had, you know, yes, it's a minor thing, like stupid dog incident, but it was a bit of a conundrum. We had to figure out how to offload this guy. We interacted with some locals that... You and I would never have had an interaction right. with those guys probably right. before. They were completely affable, so helpful. Yeah. And it just was this kind of little incident that could have been really annoying, but it turned out to be really charming, and well, we solved a problem. I, I think as a travel lesson, too, I think sometimes you bring different stereotypes into places you're unf not fully familiar with. I yeah. mean, this is my home county, but I don't often interact with everybody who's around. Yeah. One stereotype that you can superimpose on unfamiliar places, especially in this part of the country, is a political one. Yeah. Like, who did these guys vote for for president? Well, yeah. that was a non-issue. There's a thousand lenses through which you can interact right. with people. Right. This happened to be problem solving. We were right. trying to figure out how do we get this giant dog back to his home, which is now <laughs> six miles away. Right. And it was a fun moment where we just... It was. And were, I think they probably were... If they weren't charmed by it, they thought it was kind of weird and harmless, and that's a story that they might have talked about with their wives. Right. <laughs> you know, those, well, and he called us hitchhikers because he, he didn't know what, how, to, how to describe us. Right. These people who are walking for fun from their home to a small town. Like, that right. just, well, people don't do was, that. Like, he knew when I said where I live, he knew those roads. Right. But I didn't grow up here, and you didn't either, and so I think he was just trying to figure out you know what the deal is right. 
Um, but I said, I said, oh, we're gonna get married, and right. And he, they're like, oh, well, congratulations. Right. You know, so it's just <laughs> just like trying to normalize it. We're not, <laughs> we're not here for your jewels. <laughs> right. We're not. It's not some hippie conspiracy. Right. Um, and so it ended up, it ended up being fun. And uh, I don't know. There's something to be said for problem solving. I know that sometimes in a foreign country, a great way to make a friend is to be in need. Yeah. You know. Even if it's as simple as where's a good place to eat, or I'm sorry, I'm a little lost. Right. I mean, there's different ways right. of making genuine connections. And these are, um, these were super nice guys who maybe under a certain, you know, if you bring your political stereotypes to this part of the country, you'd be scared of them. Yeah. But, uh, but it's completely unnecessary to have that be part of the equation. There's no need for that to be brought up. You know, you can, yeah. there are ways of navigating even this fractious period of time without having to get in, involved in the fray of it. I mean, look, you and I have alternately like turned off all manner of news or, um, right. you know, in the past couple of weeks. Hi. Um, I mean, I haven't checked the news for a couple of days, and I, I just know that I feel better. Um, I, I just picked up Edward Abbey. Have you read much Edward Abbey? Just uh, what's his seminal work? Well, Desert Solitaire or the Monkey Wrench Gang. Monkey Wrench Gang. Fiction is the Monkey Wrench Gang, not fiction. It's, it's uh, Desert Solitaire, which is about his time as basically a park ranger in Utah. Huh. Um, he says walking takes longer than any form of locomotion except crawling. <laughs> <laughs> He's <laughs> so right. <laughs> thus it stretches time and it prolongs life. Yeah. Walking makes the world much bigger and therefore more interesting. Yeah. You have time to observe the details. Yeah, good. So first off, yeah, next week we'll crawl <laughs> yeah. oh, to, to Little that, Sweden. Our experience with those guys would have been very different had we been crawling with a dog and be like, we want no part of this. <laughs> well, would, would the dog have been interested in us had we been crawling? Probably. He might have lifted his leg on us. <laughs> he would have been, he would have been twice as big as us. I know. He was such a big dog. Oh, Larry. Larry the dog. Yeah, so in a way, the time time as we experienced yesterday um, was more intense you yeah. know that walking 22 miles spending an entire day walking 22 miles you experience time in an intensified way yeah. it isn't always pleasurable again we have a world that is sort of optimized for pleasure or the performance or the appearance of pleasure but when you're just sort of walking it's like is that is that a dead snake? Right. Oh no, it's a belt. <laughs> and then we actually, we found it was from like Bob's belt shop in Colorado. So somebody- It's had, from Don's belt shop. Yeah, in west Rocky of Grange, east, of, east of Pueblo. On the High Plains. Well, and, there's something too about marking time by the simplest form, the sun. The sun moved a little bit this way, so it must be closer to three o'clock, you know? Mm. There was a point in time when I asked what time it was and I guessed it, not because I'm great at like identifying the sun, but it was, we had been out in it all day. Yeah. It, and I think that's well, how actually, often are people outside all day unless you work outside. Yeah. You know? Well, also the light became more beautiful. Yeah. Um, as 
as in pain <laughs> I was approaching Lindsborg yesterday, <clears throat> I realized that the light was had become more beautiful. It had become more intense. And we had watched that change. Actually, Thomas Swick, who's been on this podcast before, he says, uh, in a world built on speed, walking somewhere is an act of rebellion. Walking in LA, for example, is an act of rebellion, or people think you're weird. When I lived there, I was, I would walk a lot, and I would be the only one walking. It was very strange. Even doing this in rural Kansas is a little bit like, well, huh, what are they up to? The very nice people we met yesterday said, well, these are hitchhikers, because right, right. the idea of hiking 22 miles, yeah. Um, from northern, well, from southeastern Saline County to northern McPherson County, it just no, it's it doesn't not, make it's sense. And so he called us hitchhikers right. instead of hikers. Well, even our Airbnb, the sweet Airbnb guy, was like, you did what? Right. I think it, I don't know, correct me if you think I'm wrong. I think it suggests that we also have a wealth of time that yeah. I think still in this part of the country is seen as being frivolous a little bit. You and I both have- And sort of countercultural, maybe. Yeah, you and I both have jobs that um, we're freelancers. We get uh -huh. money in, in chunks. It's not like I punch in and out on a time clock. You know, I get paid disproportionately to the amount of time that I, that I work, but I have a lot of time, as do you. So I guess that's seen as being a little unusual or kind of like city folk. Right, well, our host is a coach, you know, which means he's probably also a teacher. Yeah. Um, a baseball coach specifically. And I think, like, when you are teaching or... We just got the one finger wave, by okay. the way, which is that the sign of being really, truly... The steering wheel. In rural Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, when you're training young people, you give them structure. You give them a daily regimen right. of baseball drills or running or whatever. Life so, isn't like that anymore. Yeah. Not really. Well. Or at least for a big. You'd be in pandemic life or no, 21st I mean, century life. 21st century life. I mean, you of all people know how that is. And I do too as a freelancer. It's just you don't. I don't remember the last time I've had a nine-to-five job. Have I ever had a nine-to-five job? I don't think right. so. Well, it's becoming less weird. Yeah. I mean, there's a, like Buster Keaton was born in Kansas, not because his family had roots here, but because his family was traveling they performers. They were on the, on the road, yeah. And he was born in Pequot, Kansas, down by Iola. And I don't think he ever really identified himself as a Kansan, but there was a time when actors, which is your profession, were itinerant people, you know? Well, they still are, <laughs> or at least so many of my friends have, we've moved around, you have to. Yeah. You can be based in New York or LA, but how many times have I gone out of town for work? Which, not just theater, uh, not just theatrical work, but films too. Actors were the original digital nomads, right? <laughs> you guys, really, like yeah, during, in vaudeville, um, you went from place yeah. to place, and you went from theater to theater, yeah. Uh, and even you, as a classically trained actor, you've yes, had gigs you. in Chicago and the London distinction. and New York and, and Los Angeles, right? Um, that you, yeah. your life as a traveler and your life as an actor I've moved have so many times because of that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, my bigger point was just that I think that 
in order to have the time to walk like we have had, we, you know, it suggests a kind of counterculture to use the 60s kind of terms or an unconventionality, especially for out here. Like, why, why aren't you at work? Well, I have work tomorrow. Yeah. I've got work the next day. I don't have work, you know, like it, it's funny how it goes. This is the road. Yeah, 12th Avenue. Um, yeah, basically, while your sweet, soon-to-be husband is writing s- stories and editing podcasts, maybe in his pajama bottoms, <laughs> you're in the closet, which is also a rather sophisticated sound studio. Oh, this is beautiful. Isn't Look at it? this. Yeah. This is a dirt road. It leads directly to it. It leads directly to Coronado Heights, which is our goal. Actually, my feet feel fine. Do they? Yeah. Do you after... want to keep going? <laughs> we'll see. I need to... Pee in the trees? Yeah. Actually, we're talking about um, you know, the, the quotidian uh, support parts of a long hike. Well, parts of what happens in a long hike is that when you have to use the toilet, you have to use the toilet. You just go to the side of the road and you do your business. And, and I think in, Carol, in Jack Kerouac's Dharma Bums, he's talking about Gary Snyder, the poet, who's talking about how modern life has allowed us to pretend that our business is is efficiently just it disappears you go to the bathroom it's you take your your lunch break use the bathroom and then it's gone well when you're walking you you go to a tree you go to a a tree tree line and you do your business and i don't know does it make you more human are we being am i being too philosophical here by saying these are the things that taking a pee on the side of the road is is, this is exactly with this gets you in touch with your body in a way that so many other things are specifically designed in this world not to the creature comforts that we have don't get me wrong i love i love a spa day i think that's so much fun to go get pampered or to i don't know all of that stuff that makes you feel like you're of being taken care of is a lot of fun. Was your mic a little higher last time? I don't think maybe so. Maybe put it in the same place. Well, I don't remember where that was. Oh, I thought it was maybe on your on your lavender coat and not your... Oh, I can put it there. Ladies and gentlemen, Kiki sounds further away. It's because her because mic I'm was walking positioned. half a mile away from me. Anyway, you're talking about spa no, treatments. I th- no, I think that... Let me go back. I think that this type of thing gets you in touch with your body in a way that nothing else really does um, in our modern world. I love, yeah, I love to get a mani-pedi and have a massage. I love that kind of stuff. But I think what I love more is the back to basics, walking from point A to point B or being in a place where you've got to haul your own water or just have to do the things that really remind you how basic life can be. And it's so then gratifying to have a shower like we did last night. I mean, that thing felt incredible because well, we'd earned it in a way. But you, know? you can understand it for the blessing that it Absolutely. is. The, the kings of Europe 500 years ago didn't have showers like we had yeah. in Lindsburg, Kansas last night because it was hot and clean yeah. and beautiful. And you, you've mentioned hauling water a couple of times and I'll have to point out that that's because when we go to Colorado mm-hmm. in the winter, your family cabin there does not have functioning water in the right. winter. And so we shower every three days. And when we do, we boil the water right. and we <laughs> pour it over ourselves or each other. Rustic. And it's actually 
That also, again, because it's inefficient and because it is not a technological abstraction, except for the fact that we're using a stove to heat right. the water instead of a campfire, um, it makes you appreciate being clean. Right. I think I'm talking about being grateful for the things that we take for granted yeah. so much. Yeah. Um, it makes you appreciate a good cooked meal and the people that prepared it. It makes you appreciate the fact that we as a society have such luxuries at the snap of two fingers, whereas certain parts of the world don't have that. It really gets it down to basics and it makes you really grateful for the for all that we're that we're given. It's a really easy way to go, you know what, I'm feeling a little out of sorts right now. What's going to make me feel more connected to myself, more grateful for the things that I have, more appreciative of something like this. It's absolutely stunning sky that we have right now. Um, oh, probably going for a walk. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about how getting some form of exercise, and I think the older I get, more maybe I lean towards walking than running, That that's a reset button. There's never a time that I go for a walk and I think that was wasted time. Hmm. Well, I think um, one thing that's special about this hike is that there's no hiking trail. Well, actually there is a little Swedish, yeah, but Swedish um, rails legacy trails. rails to trails thing here, but we haven't, we used it for about 10 minutes yesterday on the way to the bar. <laughs> What normally would have taken five minutes, but it was the end of the right. hike, and it was and like... I was hobbling like an <laughs> old man last night. I feel a lot better today. It's This is another... It's worth mentioning just how Sweet. resilient we are as humans, even... I'm 50. I don't feel 50. I've mentioned before that I don't feel 50 years old, but I felt 70 when I hobbled in on mile 22 yesterday. But I feel good now. You know, it's just the next morning and I feel good. But I think that restorative sleep, a hot shower, some food, like all of those things just... It's amazing how elastic our bodies are. Yeah, well, human ad adaptivity, you know, that yeah. we are designed as much as in our sort of indoor lives can forget that we go to the gym and then we recover by watching TV or whatever, that we can wake up and be okay. You know, you shower, you get some food, and then suddenly yeah. you're, how, how long do you think we've been walking? Today? Well, so far, like a couple miles. Yeah. Um, but then my point about the fact that this is not a trail is that I live in the country and so this is sort of on offer any time. We could right. walk to Abilene where right. Dwight Eisenhower was buried, you know. We could walk to Bennington, Kansas, which is beautiful in its own Smoky Hills sort of way. Um, but then I think going back to the idea of the Flanor, a lot of people who are listening might be city bound. Well, you don't need to live on the edge of a city or in the country to enjoy a beautiful walk. That. Um, Within the city, there are ways, probably more interesting ways, to use a word I overuse, uh, in a big city to just sort of walk, maybe for seven hours like we did yesterday, but in a way that's really enriching and makes you feel your body and feel time in a special way. Um, I wanna go back to a quote here. Uh, I have a couple. One is Kierkegaard. There's all these philosophers who are walkers. Maybe walking puts you in a philosophical frame of mind. Is he Danish? He's Danish, not Swedish or Norwegian. Right. Rounds out the core Scandinavian triumvirate here. He says, every day I walk myself into a state of well-being mm. and walk away every illness. Mm. I have walked myself into my best thoughts mm. and I know of no thought so burdensome 
that not one cannot walk away from it. That's beautiful. Use a word that I like, apparently. <laughs> right, right. So does that uh, has, does that apply? Oh, here's a truck. Look at that. Does that apply to you? Do you find yourself? Yeah, I feel better afterwards. Yeah. Even if I haven't, you know, again, I'm the anti-philosopher. It's not like I'm coming up with all of these incredible new thoughts that I'm going to promulgate in the world, but I feel better often, which isn't to say that I always start off walks with not feeling good, but it's physiological, it's mental, it's being out in fresh air. There's something for me that's deeply spiritual about it. And when you read that quote, there was nothing about this that suggested this, but I thought... The, the thing that came to mind is it's anti-consumerism to walk. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> we're, we're basically doing nothing for society right now. Right. We're not contributing, other than the fact that we bought some coffees and contributed to the, to the economy of Lindsberg, Kansas. We are, we're kind of people that aren't, that are just off the grid. We're person X. We're persons X. A well, bit. This is this is a, a line from Vagabond. I think the idea that we've been tricked into con confusing consumer options with life options. That so many life options are a matter of spending no money and just walking right. until the day becomes interesting. To right. use another word, another phrase from my book. Um, right. I think. I love it. You're like, yes, that reminds me of a quote from this, well, this book. You may have, myself. may have heard of it. It's called Vagabonding. <laughs> well, I think, you know, more so than being self-referential, it's the idea that the philosophy that I put into words 20 years ago still applies in, in, different, in a different scenario than it might have before. Even those of us who haven't read your book can kind of identify right. with it on a way. <laughs> so universal. I've never read it. Well, so much there. <laughs> we're, I mean, um, to get past my book and talk about previous podcasts, when I had a head injury and was suffering from depression, walking and sometimes running, you know, we're talking about walking yourself away from did your that, problems, your bad help? thoughts. Oh, absolutely. Did it? More so. I, I never medicated. Um, yeah. I thought about medicating. Yeah. But I've, invariably... I think it helps if, if you need it. When I was emotionally low running or, or walking um, helped me reset a little bit. <laughs> it's worth worth considering. Um, I have another quote for you. I think the real miracle is not to walk on water, but to walk on earth. Every day we are engaged in a miracle which we don't even recognize. Blue sky, white clouds, green leaves, our own two eyes. All is a miracle. Mm. Can you guess who that is? It sounds like Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah, that's Thich Nhat Hanh. Ha, boom. Uh, well, it's funny that it, actually you've already mentioned the blue sky. Yeah. We don't have a lot of clouds and there's no greenness. It's winter. But in a way, we, we can see the miracle, the simple miracle of it is. being here. It is. I mean, you, I think one doesn't need to couch it in this way, but think about people for whom walking is not an option. Hmm. Or think about people who are so sick that they can't. Or think about people who are old and can't move around in this way anymore. I mean, I sometimes I try to fast forward in my mind to when I'm going to be, you know, housebound or chairbound or something, and it makes me want to soak this up even more. It is a miracle. I mean, all of it is. <laughs> We're talking about Dirt Road, Kansas. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, yesterday we, we joked about how suddenly I was 20 years older, but it made me realize if, if your legs are not as, as fresh, yeah. even if you haven't been walking 18 miles and your legs feel like they're failing you, maybe it made me appreciate the struggles yeah. of somebody who's, who's yeah. less able to, to walk so easily, right? Yep. And just the fact that I didn't have the choice, I, I just had to power it on home. And so for some people that, you know, for older people specifically, that might be a walk to the mall requires the effort that the last four miles of a 22 mile walk in, entailed for me yesterday. Well, I remember, and maybe I'll want you to edit this out because it's quite personal, but my dear grandmother who lived to be 97 years old, she was fiercely independent and in the last weeks of her life, she, her legs just wouldn't work. She was someone for whom mobility was, you know, tantamount to her existence. Her car, her little walker that she used, all of those things enabled her to move. And her legs gave out, just stopped. And that was, it was devastating um, for her, but also for us to just see her struggling in a way that you know she hadn't since she was an infant and couldn't remember it but she would say sometimes that she was she apologized for being a burden and I just wanted to shake her and say knock it off you're hardly you're hardly a burden but my heart was so went out to her because she didn't have this incredibly simple thing at her disposal anymore and that was I think she was so great. I mean, she probably told herself, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And she died not long after because I think a life without being able to do that for herself was no life at all. And I mean, she was 97. It was, right. it, she had lived a really beautiful life. Beautiful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I think about that as being, all right, I'm done. If I can't walk. Well, I think it, the fact that I, aged 20 years in my legs last <laughs> night. Is it was pretty cute. <laughs> I'm glad that's the way you're framing it. Um, but it, just a reminder that, again, life is lived in the moment. Yeah. And putting things off could in life could mean, well, I'm not going to be able to hike this French mountain trail in the way that I had hoped to now. Right. And I think people in their 70s, for example, hike mountain trails all the time. But all the time. It reminds you that life has to be lived right now because well, your grandmother can't... lived a rich life, but there is a point at which, yeah, when you're 97, it's all right. we're just not allotted that many yeah. years. And it's so all right to really let go. need to embrace the now of life. And I think for COVID times, like it's harder for us to get on a plane and go, I'd love to go hiking in Austria with you or in Italy or wherever. But we can't do that right now, so we said let's do some hiking in our out of our back back door, and we did. And we talked about that even what like a week ago, two weeks ago, and yeah. we did it. Which is one thing I love about our chemistry. I mean, I could see myself doing this alone, and it would have had a different sort of um, significance to it. I think it would have been more meditative, perhaps, and certainly would have been equally worth doing. But I think there's something really joyous about being able to share it with someone because it almost, it, it's, it's almost as if it compounds the feeling a bit when you can share it with someone. I'm, that's something I love about what we've 
our experiences together. We just, we do it. We're going to do it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. A reminder, if you enjoy my podcast from week to week to share your favorite episodes with friends who might be interested and to spread the word by leaving a friendly rating or review at whichever podcasting service you use to listen to Deviate. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Patrick Lee Firmer, who you haven't read. Are you getting tired of talking? No, but I also think that that little pause there was good. You should leave that in. Sure. Because that's all part of... This pause was brought to you by... <laughs> we'll insert a sponsor ad here if one exists. Right. Um, well, I, but isn't that... That's part of it, isn't it? The kind of... The desultory nature of in and out speaking about things that are of big import or look at that stone or look at that hawk or just kind of nothing. It's... There's a gentleness to the way walking allows you to kind of dip in and out of things. And there's that, it's my bar concept or my car concept of why, why sometimes the best conversations come when you have a fixed point that you're headed towards, whether it's the bartender or the road in front of you with a car or the road in front of you with a, with a walk. You can have conversations that are easier to have maybe than if you're sitting, you know, stock still across from each other, eyes to eyes. There's something really gentle and open about there being place for you to have maybe a difficult conversation well to silence i think silence is more comfortable in a conversation when you're walking maybe also on a road trip one great thing about a road trip is that you're doing something you're traveling you're talking you're being quiet you're playing some music you're talking you're being quiet well this happened yesterday it cannot have happened today because we've been podcasting since we started walking but we had some nice silences yesterday and in fact there was a silence where suddenly we heard a hawk yeah and then we saw the hawk uh and you do mean mcreynolds the hawk correct (laughs) in in our habit of naming animals after the roads we're walking on poor rolf he's he's stuck with someone who anthropomorphizes everything so because we're at the intersection of McReynolds Road, that hawk became McReynolds. Um, <laughs> um, and we imagined him eating Nibbler, and Nibbler is a name for the mouse that got in our Lived house. In our house. Um, so much going on. <laughs> no, but this, actually, this, our willingness to be silent introduced us to a part of the landscape that we might have missed otherwise. Yeah. He's golden. Is it a red tailed hawk? I don't know. be fun to be able to ride the currents like that oh wait there's a shoe we talked about wearing all the things only the things that we find on the road the belt those boots there's a nike shoe yeah uh, ladies and gentlemen this this is actually one of our slap happy jokes from yesterday when we found a belt and like an oversized baseball hat in the ditch somewhere in the middle of nowhere it's the idea of starting out the hike in a speedo 
and then just like slowly putting the things on that you find in the ditch.